All right. Hello to everybody that is tuning in. This is our seventh installment of the Phenotip Speaker Series. So thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Kira Deneen. We are going to be talking about improving the patient experience today. So getting into topics with this and having a really great conversation. Our guest is Demetra Georgiou, and she is the principal GC at Northwest Thames Regional Genetic Service. She's also a transformation manager at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. So again, thank you for joining us for everybody that's filtering in. We really appreciate you taking the time and connecting with us from all over the world. For those that aren't familiar with our format, we start out with a 40 minute or so conversation between me and Demetra, and then we're going to answer your questions at the end. So feel free to submit your questions throughout our conversation as they pop up in your head, as you're inspired from this conversation. You can submit those questions in that Q&A box at the bottom. Um, you can also use the chat feature, but we'd prefer you submitting questions through that Q&A box. And then we're going to be able to read those again at the end of the show, but feel free to pop them in as you think of them. And I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this series, Phenotips. They are the world's first genomic health record system. They have designed software and services that ease genetic professionals' workflow. So having tools like pedigree builders, standardized symptom capture, and diagnostic insights. As many of us know, working in healthcare, in genetics, electronic health records are not built for genetics. So it can be a pain sometimes to use them and adapt them to the way that we work. So what Phenotips has done is they've filled in these gaps by providing providing a complete suite for genetic medicine. And in light of the pandemic, Phenotips started sponsoring the series so that we could bring together genetic professionals and continue our education as many of us are now working differently from home or not seeing colleagues as much, not having these in-person conversations. So um, they thought of starting the speaker series to really connect all of us and talk about topics you know, relating to issues in the workplace and ways that we can improve ourselves and our patients as We'll be talking about today. So as I mentioned at the top, I am Kira Deneen. I'm your host for this webinar. I'm also the host of DNA Today. Uh, we recently won the People's Choice Award for the best 2020 science and medicine podcast, which was a huge honor. So if you enjoy conversations like in the speaker series, you can check out the show. We have over 140 episodes in the past nine years. So definitely check that out if you're interested. Um, I'm also recently a prenatal genetic counselor. So I have joined the genetic counseling workforce officially. And I want to um, share a little bit more about our guest today, Demetra. She is a genetic counselor at NHS, as I mentioned, for the last 11 years, and she specializes in cancer genetics and innovation. So focusing on how openness and tech aid overstretched healthcare systems and staff and diving into those topics that we'll explore today. Um, she has looked at service design as a means to enhance the healthcare experience and outcomes. And in her current role, she explores how we traditionally work and how we can potentially work and looking to improve ourselves specifically with virtual clinics, which as I mentioned with the pandemic is, you know, such an important aspect to be looking at in this past year, telemedicine, digital solutions that can empower NHS users and their families as well as clinicians. So Demetra, thank you so much for coming on the show here and exploring all these topics with us. I'm really excited to hear all your expertise. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. I'm also super happy to be here. Congratulations for all of your news, by the way. Oh, thank and you. Thank yeah. you for everyone for joining us. So I mentioned healthcare service design, but some people may not be familiar with this term or they're kind of guessing what this means. Um, can you explain to viewers what this term means and what it means in terms of genetics? Yeah. So service design actually is a, is a principle. It's a a process where several methods and tools are used to bring together insights about how institutions, individuals, users, stakeholders, or even IT systems come together and either interact or have constant uh, engagement and basically explores how this can be improved and focuses um, small problems into sections and looks into how things can work better in the future. And by better, we mean more sustainable, more useful, 
more friendly to the user. So not only it gives them some benefit, but also it's easy to access. And it also is more accessible and acceptable for the stakeholder as well. So seeing how all those parts work and how they can communicate better in order, at the end of the day, we're always trying to improve that patient experience. So that, that being a main focus for all the parts to work with that common goal in mind, it's what it sounds like there. Um, what areas of improvement do you see that we should really be focusing on for that patient experience? I mean, what do you see coming up most frequently? Hmm. Wow, <laughs> where do we start from this one? It's a big question, um, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I guess if we break it down in pieces, you've got um, the patient becoming aware of genomics as a service, whether it is because a relative of theirs has got a genetic condition or whether it's because their GP or healthcare professional said, perhaps you'll be eligible for a genetic test, no matter how they become aware of it. I guess that's the first step where we need to ensure that there's enough available information for them to understand what this really is and prepare themselves for an appointment. Because there's also a lot of data to suggest that if a person doesn't know what the appointment is about and doesn't know what to expect, what to ask for, and basically what the potential benefit could be for them, they wouldn't be prepared enough for that 45 minute consultation and perhaps wouldn't be prepared enough again to give their consent, which is super paramount for our practice consent. I think we all strive to ensure that all our patients have informed consent. So going back to ensure that even before they come to see us, they know what is going on, on average, what to expect, what they can do, how they can collect information from their family members, what questions to ask, etc. That's very, very essential. I think that probably is, is the number one priority that I would have at the moment. Um, because once we tackle that, it means that we have equal access. It means that everyone that comes through the door knows equally what to expect. They know equally how to handle their situation to the best of their ability. And then of course we've got their I guess onboarding experience when they have their first interaction with genomics, perhaps a second interaction when there's a result or even third one when there's perhaps a follow-up for a long-term condition. That again, there's a lot of room for improvement there. You know, could we provide them with more information? Could we assist them a bit more in, for example, supporting their family members? I think there's a lot of evidence to say that patients would like some help in sharing the news about the genetic condition with other people in the family. And of course, there's other interactions and there's other smaller elements that I guess we can discuss a bit later today during those experiences, during the clinical appointments that we can improve on. So it's really then, going from like a start to finish of thinking about yeah. what patients experience even before they come in the door, which I think is a really great point to highlight and just where you started of hmm. seeing, okay, do they have all the information or are they mentally prepared for what we're going to be talking about? Are they acclimated to this information? Um, so it's, yeah. it's interesting that, you know, it's not just when they walk in the door, it's really thinking about all the way to like when that appointment is first being made. Definitely. Definitely. I think we can, you know, we can learn from other um, services as well. It doesn't have to be just the healthcare service, but we can see how, for example, hospitality, how banking have done everything a bit more accessible and more broad so that people, even before they apply, for example, for a loan or for something, they can find the information online. They can see what the process is, how long it would take. So they have a bit of an understanding of what to expect. Um, whereas I wouldn't say the same, sadly, about healthcare. It takes quite a while for someone to navigate through the system and then there's still a lot of uncertainties about what happens when and that kind of interaction is very useful for us to um, improve because the the more aware the patient is what to expect what is going on how when I would feel that the less anxious they perhaps would feel because they would know what is going on and how long it would take that would take some anxiety away, I guess, 
and perhaps would help them to concentrate on what really is important, which is, I guess, managing their condition or the child's condition, et cetera. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And something, especially looking at, we don't need to just look at the healthcare system, but look at other examples, because oftentimes we're talking about these topics and we're very in the healthcare system, we're very in genetics, but it can be really helpful to take a step back and look at that perspective of, okay, we're giving information to people. There's a lot of different areas of life where that's happening, where it's happening really well. So I think looking at that and saying, how can we transition those systems more to healthcare so that patients do feel like when they come in, we've, we've all had sessions where people come in, have no idea why they're coming in, don't know what a genetic yeah. counselor is. And people that come in and say, this is exactly the testing I want. I've done this research and just how different the experience is as a genetic mm-hmm. counselor and thinking, wow, I feel like my patient got a lot more out of that because they knew what they were coming into. They had talked about, you know, to their family about their health history, had that information and just how it really sets you up to have a really productive appointment to cover what you need to, but then also just the patient feeling like we've really covered everything I wanted to. And I feel like I got what I wanted out of the session instead of a surprise. Yeah, exactly. It has to be that we work with them, not for them or to them. So I I couldn't agree anymore because in my experience too, I had a few patients that didn't know they were referred, firstly. Secondly, why they were referred. Perhaps it could be that their clinician told them about the referral, but I guess if an individual is being given bad news about their baby or about their own health, perhaps they would forget about what else comes after that. So when they come and see us, we spend so much time trying to untangle why they are there, which is of course for them sometimes a shocking experience to realize, oh gosh, there could be something genetic wrong with me. So obviously that takes away from us providing with useful information for their health. Of course, it does help them to understand why they're there. I'm not saying that we shouldn't spend that time. We definitely should. It's just that we are so restricted already with time that if we spend those 45 minutes or an hour on just addressing why they are there, what will happen, et cetera, it it perhaps would leave them with a lot of questions afterwards and perhaps their experience as well as healthcare outcome wouldn't be as good. And there's actually a lot of evidence to say that, to prove that people who have Uh, reported having a satisfactory experience in healthcare, they usually have better outcomes because they probably feel they can trust their healthcare professional, they know what is going on when, and they know how to handle it. Yeah, I think that's very well said and just making sure that we are connecting with our patients and doing like the contracting and taking time and not, you know, we can be very busy. We have so many patients to see in a day and trying to keep on track so that patients aren't waiting long. There's so many pieces of it, Um, but really connecting and making sure, as you said, they're getting everything they need to. Um, How have you seen the pandemic alter this patient experience? We're about a year into it now. How have you seen that change of before the pandemic and then now is it, are you meeting with a lot of telehealth and that has, you know, put an impact with the, you know, your experience and what you imagine the patient experience is? Yeah, that's actually a very good question. And thank you for asking it. We had an amazing experience um, through it. I guess for us, it was a bit novel Uh, for our team. It was novel to use this technology So, of course, we had a bit of a challenge, I guess, to get used to how to set this up, you know, even knowing where to put the laptop against the window so that it doesn't glare and so that we can see each other, Um, connection issues, etc. So we had a lot of that. And then after we established everything, we thought, and actually was uh, my team's assumption that, you know what, this is a nightmare. I don't think people would like this. And you know, there's a lot of technical problems and we feel that maybe they wouldn't feel able to ask us questions because it's just so distant, etc. But actually, we uh, worked with a few service designers, a couple actually, that did an amazing job with us. They engage with patients, they engage with us, they engage with our admin people, our admin team. They also observed a few consultations and they came up with the exact opposite finding. 
So they found that patients actually really enjoyed being comfortable at home. They really didn't have to struggle for hours sometimes using public transport to come and see us in the hospital. They didn't feel they had to wait in a waiting room. They also reported, interestingly, that they enjoyed not um, having this formal interaction. Hmm. Because I guess when you go in a, in a consultation room, automatically you take a position of the patient. And there is a doctor sitting on the big desk and you sit in a smaller chair. And it feels almost that already the dynamic is different. And we found that many, many patients have reported that that level of comfort and that level of informality made them feel way more um, satisfied with their appointment. Only a small number of uh, patients said that having an informal setting didn't, didn't agree with them. But that was actually an interesting finding. And I think it's probably true because, you know, you, you step in a hospital, it feels already that, oh gosh, you know, it, it's a serious thing. This is where people are being treated, let's say cancer or other pediatric conditions, cardiology conditions, etc. So you already feel like you're vulnerable. And then you have to wait in the waiting room. You see other people who are in the same position. Then you go in this consultation room, which to be honest, is not the best looking room in the world. <laughs> I know we're quite limited in funds, but I find it a bit annoying sometimes that the only question we ask is, is the room clean? You know, <laughs> it should be more than that. <laughs> yes, I think it should. You know, is the room comfortable also? Or did you feel okay or happy in that room? Of course, you know, we cannot give a lot of money in making the rooms amazingly beautiful. You know, it's not the Ritz, but we could try and make them look less daunting, I think. And more of a homey feel so that, I mean, especially when you're having, you know, a consultation where you're mostly talking and you're mostly talk, like educating and going through information that you don't need necessarily a very sterile room. Like that's, you know, that image of just like a doctor's office um, yeah. and creating more of an atmosphere of, you know, equality too is an interesting point that you brought up with telehealth people feel like, okay, I'm in my home and the genetic counselor or my genetic professionals also probably in their home office yeah. and just, you're both coming together. Um, and you don't have this power dynamic as much, which is a really interesting point that you brought up of just thinking about how the patient feels and how comfortable they are. And, you know, going to a new place or, you know, mm -hmm. place where it's like, oh, this is this person's office, this is their, their turf and their area, yeah. um, and stepping into that and kind of just feeling a little bit out of the box and then having it so different from home and just patients feeling like they can open up, they can connect um, and bring up the points they want to um, is probably not what people expected before the pandemic of patients preferring telehealth often, as you said. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was a very good finding. And I think it also challenged the way we think. And I feel this is the most important thing of service design and innovation. You have to stop thinking how you're thinking, because otherwise you would never do anything new. And also our assumptions are not necessarily true. They're just assumptions. And um, just because we are not used to using IT, for example, because the NHS is quite traditional in that sense. And we're just starting to become a bit more uh, IT heavy, if I may use that expression, uh, or paperless. You know, a lot of us are using at the moment paper files, so we're not digital yet. But I guess we have to remember that most of our patients, or I can actually a lot of our patients, not most necessarily, you know, are used to having their banking app on their phone. Everything is digital. So for them, it's just yet another digital thing. It's not a problem. Um, yeah, so I think that was very useful to that respect. And also it was very useful for us to understand that experience element of, okay, what makes the patient comfortable? what would then increase the level of comfort for the patient and how would that impact their level of satisfaction? 
Yeah. Just taking that all into account um, and, and thinking outside of the box, as you kind of said of, you know, if we keep doing the thing, the way we've always done something, we're not going to see improvements from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but trying new approaches. Um, one of the areas that you focus in on your career is looking at that, looking at traditional approaches to things and saying, well, how can we do this a little bit differently and maybe improve upon it? Um, is there areas Um, that come to your mind that you've been thinking about recently with taking like a traditional genetic counseling approach and doing it differently to improve patient experience? Hmm. Uh, Yeah, there's actually quite a few. Um, The the one that we have just established is more of, it's less of a genetic counseling uh, task and more of a clinical genetics task because you have to do with uh, assessing babies at neonatal intensive units. So I would imagine it's probably similar in America where you've got big hospitals, quite a number of them. Many of them have neonatal intensive units. These babies require urgent care. It's super important that something is offered to them uh, promptly and with good quality, of course. And we have the same situation over here. There's quite a few neonatal units in our patch and for a genetic consultant to attend one of them to see a baby, they would need about half a day minimum to travel there, find the baby, examine it, come back. And that obviously was a big problem because we don't have the resource. And it ended up that the resource itself was limiting in how many consultations we could offer. And that's of course a big issue because we want to be equitable and every baby that needs a consultation should have it. So what we did, we basically established a remote virtual camera cart that lives in the neonatal unit and automatically connects the neonatal unit with the consultant remotely. And they do have a full, I guess, control of the camera. They can move it left or right, up or down, zoom in or out. So they can examine the baby remotely within way less time on the same day even, it's possible to be done on the same day without having to wait. And it also increases the number of babies we could actually see. Wow, so So that's remarkable of just looking at, used to take half a day with travel, you get in there, I'm sure there's protocol of what you need to do as you enter the building, Mm -hmm. um, and even just making sure that you're fully, you know, washing your hands and just all the little things to do. And then finally, you know, being able to see the infant and then you're just like, well, let's cut all of that out and be much more efficient. Um, using technology is so this is something that was recently put into place yeah we just um, installed uh, one cart and we're about to install a couple more um, because it was actually very well received by clinicians and we are actually also about to start um, a bit of a more of a patient research project to see what parents think about this do they feel it's a good thing do they think it can be improved in any way? Do they think, for example, um, that um, this is not good for their baby? You know, it could be that they may have concerns about privacy that we can uh, address, of course, and, and answer because everything that we have used in terms of IT solutions are is approved and safe. Uh, so yeah, I guess it's, it'd be useful for us to understand where they would come from. And what we can do to make their experience through this better. And I'm sure they also appreciate that it's one less person that is possibly bringing exposure in. I'm sure that that was a big push for this to happen during COVID just to limit that exposure because, you know, I I can just imagine being a a parent and your baby's in the NICU and, you know, and non-invasive, um, like looking at that and just saying, okay, how can we limit this? I mean, being in a hospital, certainly a lot of exposure. So um, yeah. I'm sure for the most part, I would you know, expect patients uh, to yeah. really be excited about this technology. Um, so are parents then also able to connect with that provider? Is it more just for an exam part? They can be there. So there's, uh, there's two cameras, one looking at the baby, one looking out to the, the consultant and the parent. So the parent can be there if they they would like um, and participate, ask questions. Um, Alternatively, if they, for example, do not wish to have a a video appointment for their baby, they can request a physical appointment. Um, 
I guess we're just also, you know, exploring, you know, how can we do that in a way that they can attend? Do they want to attend? Would they, for example, want to have a quick call with the consultants later? We're just about to explore those, those things because it could be that they would like something that we haven't even thought about. Yeah, and certainly it's really great to hear from the patient experience and hear mm. these are aspects we like, these are aspects that we wish were a little bit different. And then it sounds like you're doing that and seeing, okay, what do patients want differently and approaching that and saying, okay, how can we implement something mm. new to appease patients and make them feel more comfortable, give them more information? Yeah. Um, are there other digital tools that you're also taking advantage of to improve the patient experience? Is there um, ways that, you know, we were talking about earlier where patients can get more information either before their appointment or after, um, or is it more digital tools you're using more on your side so that you can make sure patients get all the care they need? Yeah. Um, well, firstly, we're looking into how we can uh, collate uh, patient family history data. So this is a conversation that we had with Phenotips um, for the last year. Um, we also already are using um, a patient portal. So essentially this patient portal talks to the uh, electronic uh, healthcare record that we have in the hospital and pulls data, for example, appointment dates, results, um, any useful information regarding a chronic condition, etc. So we're setting up um, a care pathway for individuals that have hereditary cancer conditions so that they know exactly when their next screening test would be, um, for example, if it's Lynch syndrome, when is their next colonoscopy, what's the result of the previous one. There will be a, a symptom checker to, for them to input, you know, if they've got any changes in their habit, in the bowel habit, or any other uh, unusual changes in their body that they have noticed. And the, the tool would give them uh, information on whether the, their symptoms should, should be investigated promptly or not. Um, and there's also uh, useful information regarding what to tell your relatives. Uh, it would have their reports in there so they can actually email the report, the PDF file to their family member. And we also hope that uh, we would also use it as an interactive tool. So we're thinking of perhaps once a year, we can send them an email. How's everything? You know, have you had any problems this year? Anything you would like us to investigate? And they can come back to us, I guess, instantly, like a chat kind of function. Um, hoping that this way, at least, it would be more of a synergistic kind of approach instead of us, you know, um, expecting the patient to have a problem, go to their GP, the GP may ignore it, then they will go again and again, and this is how sometimes problems are missed. So we're hoping that this way, at least, the patient will feel more engaged, more involved in everything that is going on, more aware of the journey, their upcoming appointments, etc. And they would also, I guess, feel a bit closer to the team that is looking after them. Yeah, I'm sure that that just helps patients feel like they are being followed and having using this technology so that it's just automatically there. And then if something pops up that, oh, there's a red flag, we need to touch base with this patient. I mean, efficiency wise, that sounds like a dream of just patients getting the care they need, but it's not taking additional time out of healthcare providers days, unless there is an issue that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like this is just involving a lot of different areas. It's not just, you know, the genetics department, but having everybody be involved with having, you know, this portal, the patient has their side, the healthcare providers all have their sides from different departments. Um, we started out mentioning at the beginning, just how important it is to have all of this multidisciplinary collaboration. Um, how can we improve communications between providers? Kind of like, obviously the, the patient communication is very important, but if the providers are not able to talk and communicate properly, then we're not going to be able to inform the patient. Um, yeah. what, what have you learned in terms of just improving those communications and those conversations? Yeah, actually, um, I think you raised a very good point. And I found that one of the most impactful and meaningful questions you can ask a patient on a survey is, do you feel your healthcare providers communicated well with each other? Um, because in a way, it's meaningless if you see one person 
you're given a plan and then you go to this other person and you have to share your story all over again with a chance that maybe you miss something um, adding more to your level of risk. Um, yes, I think collaboration is super important. And I think in this day and age where genomics is being applied almost in every discipline in medicine, there has to be an extra effort from our, our side. And I guess from other departments such as cardiology, pediatrics, neurology, etc. Um, the way we can do things can, it could be in, in so many different ways, whether we do uh, multidisciplinary team meetings, and I guess MS Teams and Zoom and all of these online solutions have nowadays revolutionized everything because we can meet regardless of where we are. Um, we could also think about working differently. For example, one of my best experiences in terms of a patient experience and patient impact was from my role um, in a cardiology unit in, in London, um, where basically patients spent the whole day there and they saw every single professional they needed to for their heart problem. Whether that was uh, a person doing their echo, a person doing the exercise test, a cardiologist, a genetic counselor, etc. So everything was done in a day, everything was present there on one system. People could communicate with each other about cases that were quite complex. So the patients were very satisfied. It was actually one of the best rated services in, in the UK um, for I think one of the reasons being this, that patients came there, everything was smooth. They had everything done in one day, which means they didn't have to jump through hoops to go to different appointments and make sure that they all fall at the correct time so the cardiologist would finally get everything at one go hoping they would get it because sometimes the hospital systems are different. So if you have an echocardiogram in hospital X, maybe hospital Y would not receive it. So um, that alone was very, very good. And I would imagine that repeating that in as many disciplines as possible where that would be useful uh, would be very helpful for the professionals as well as the um, patients themselves and their families. And I'd say professionals because we actually spend quite a lot of time searching for things. And you may have seen it in your experience as well. Like you spend probably 50% of your time doing detective work, trying to find a scan or someone's report or speak to another professional that is seeing one of your patients. And it just seems like, you know, you spend so much time looking for one thing that would take one minute. Yes. <laughs> so if we worked closer together, that would go away. It would take away from our frustrations as clinicians and would probably allow us all that time to focus on what really is important. And just having like, you know, as you said, all those appointments in one day, as you said, the patient doesn't have to take off multiple days or time blocks of work, have childcare, travel to these different locations, make sure that all that paperwork gets to the next person that, oh, you know, the cardiologist needs something before they're able to see the patient, but they're waiting on results and this and that, or it hasn't mm -hmm. been faxed over, it hasn't been shared with them. Um, so just having it set up where there is a workflow for, okay, patients that have X condition or X indication, this is the flow and this is how they're scheduled. I mean, just, you know, as you said, from a provider point of view, um, just makes things so much more, you know, mm. smooth and easier. And then for patients just to know, oh, everything's going to be covered at this point and they're preparing themselves. Okay. This is the day I'm going in for, um, really is one that, you know, I feel like that model should be studied and applied, as you said, to different areas, because it's not just, you know, for patients that are being followed for a cardiac condition, um, but so many other areas where we can say, well, if we can figure out the flow and then apply this into the system, um, it just being such a better experience for everybody. Mm, definitely. Yes, I, I, yeah, I would agree. And this is an effort that we're doing at the moment as well. We're trying to create as many joint clinics as possible so that the patient themselves wouldn't have to do multiple appointments to reach one conclusion. And also to ensure that um, the communication between the two clinicians uh, is, is very good. 
And I think it also leads to another um, gain as well. The closer that genetic services work with other disciplines, the more educated other disciplines become on genomics. And that would, of course, enrich their patient's experience uh, as well when they discuss genomic testing or referring the patient for genetic consultant as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And before I forget, I just want to remind people that you can submit your questions throughout our conversation here, and we're going to ask them at the end. So I have so many questions, but if you guys have questions, I want to get to those first. Um, but that also just brings up a point of wait times that I imagine if patients are going back to back appointments, everything's set up that the wait times are probably minimal just because there's, there's a flow to things and patients cite a long wait time is one of the top major factors in their experience. If they're waiting a long time, you know, they're already going into that appointment, maybe a little annoyed of why am I waiting so long? Did they book me right? Um, you know, what's going on? Is someone just taking a long lunch break? A lot of things popping up in patients' heads. How can healthcare providers maximize the amount of time, um, that they're with patients and minimize the amount of time that they're waiting and being able to be more efficient when it comes to this? Um, I'll give you actually an experience that I had in a different section to give you the answer to this. So I, I don't know whether we can say the brand, but you know the, the computer brand has a fruit on it. <laughs> uh, Wonder what that could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you go to their shop, there's usually tens or even a hundred people in a shop at any given time. Um, there's devices everywhere. There's lots of light. It's beautiful in there, you know, plants, you name it, everything. And you're expected to wait because there's actually a lot of people and there usually is one person coming in to check you in to see why you're there. And then they let you know, okay, a person from this team or that team will see you in a bit. So you wait. And interestingly, you wait happily, you explore all the devices, then you pay up about a thousand pounds, two thousand pounds, sometimes three, and you live happy as Larry. <laughs> and that is not a problem. So I think waiting time actually is, is called a problem, but is it? Um, because in, in some other instances, like either airports, you know, you go there two hours early. You spend your money on all the duty-free shops. That's not a problem. People love it. Not to say that people would love being in a hospital. However, if I was to bring it back to my experience before in, in the cardiac hospital, um, I remember actually it was a very nice hospital. Yes, of course, it wasn't a hotel, but it looked very nice. It was nice on the inside, lots of natural light. They had a very nice canteen with food that was edible, actually. It really counts. Um, yeah, it and, does. Yeah, and uh, it was in the center of London. So people can actually pop out for an hour for coffee, to shop something, to see the area a bit if they would like, and then come back. And they were very happy because everything was communicated to them. So they, would be, they were told, your next appointment is at this time. You can wait here, you can wait there. You can go outside if you'd like, you know, time is yours. So I'd bring it back and like rethink the whole thing. Is waiting time the major problem here? I don't think so. The problem here that we have is that, first of all, patients feel anxious about what is going on, what is about to happen. I'm waiting here for the doctor to see me. So you, you start to think a lot, right? So you, you think, what could they say? what could be wrong, etc. And then the other problem is, you're probably sitting in a very ugly room. Um, and that doesn't help. There was actually um, a, a British charity called Maggie Centers, and they actually have gone a bit international where they realized that patients too would like to have a nice environment to be offered treatment and they're called Maggie Centers. Uh, they're beautiful architecturally. They've got a nice interior. People go there and they feel relaxed. They go there obviously because they have cancer. They see other cancer patients, but they realize that actually it's a nice place at least. So that's very important. I think some hospitals have started to like pick on this, on the importance of a place being nice for a patient to wait in. Then. 
I was thinking also with this waiting time, while you have it, you could actually help the patient understand why they're there, which is the major problem that we have and the major problem they have also because they report, I don't know what's going on. And I would say that not knowing what's going on, I don't know what to ask. I, I don't know what's happening to me. It's probably a bigger problem than I was waiting for 20 minutes. So I, I would take the focus off from what is the problem with waiting time. Of course, if it can be minimized, yes. But actually, if we have this bigger problem, then why don't we use solutions to address that bigger problem while the patient is there? Whether that would be, for example, with videos on a big, big screen, or maybe we can have iPads with some information in there. Uh, whether we can have a receptionist maybe with some information materials that they can hand to the patient so that they can prepare themselves or even something that is completely more relaxing, whether it's them with an iPad listening to music. You know, it, it could help them that way. Yeah, of thinking about it in a different way of not necessarily just how long is a patient waiting, but what is that experience like? And are we taking advantage of that time? Um, you know, certainly for people to learn more about why they're there, get more information so that when they're walking into that appointment, they have a little bit more and they've um, felt like they're more accustomed to the place um, and that it's not brand new to them. They're not taking it in as much. Um, and that kind of brings up you know, the patient education side that we've touched on a little bit, um, how do you establish the level of genetic literacy for patients, you know, before their visit or at the beginning of their visit? Um, what are ways that you're establishing what they know beforehand so that you can help bridge the gap of, you know, where they're starting from to where you want them to be in terms of understanding genetics while not you know, say insulting someone of someone that has a PhD in genetics and you're explaining what a chromosome is. Um, whereas for other people, maybe they don't know what DNA is and then you're having to bring them to that level. How are you figuring out where they fall on that scale and then bringing them to a point where you feel comfortable that they understand enough? Yeah, I guess the most important thing is just to ask them, uh, what, what do you know so far? And explain to them, I'm not here to judge you. I just would like to help you um, basing the consultation around your background knowledge and also uh, another thing that i found through reading through literature as well as through our recent user experience um, uh, research that we have done with our patients is that people do not really uh, want necessarily to know all the nitty-gritty about chromosomes genes how the gene is uh, for example altered etc. All they want to know is, what does that mean to me? What does that mean to my children, for my children? What do I need to do next? What are the options? And can you tell me, explain to me what the plan would be so that we can agree on something together? So it's, I think we are trained, I guess, based on function and we learn and work every single day basing our activities based on creating a functional outcome. But patients do not necessarily value the functional outcome about the emotional one. And for them, it's all about, okay, what does that mean for me? It, it doesn't have to necessarily mean that we need to go through everything, including what's an exon, what's a gene, how it's gone through the sperm and the egg. They just want to know what's the chance, what would I do if I have it? What does it mean for my children? And of course, some patients are curious and they want to know, not a problem, we can expand on that. But it doesn't mean that we need to concentrate so much on information that to some extent may just go over their heads and they may not really care about the gene and the chromosome. They just want to know what it means to them. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you know, seeing, okay, when this patient leaves my office, or leaves the telehealth visit now, what information do they need to know in order for me to feel that I have true consent if we're ordering mm. genetic testing? Um, and realizing that you know all the details may not be pertinent and focusing in on, okay, if I want them to understand these three concepts, what's the background that they need to know to get to that point and kind of working backwards? 
Um, in terms of the genetic testing process for you, um, you know, there's a lot of different pathways and ways it can be ordered. And, um, what have you found to be, you know, an approach to doing this that maybe is a little bit different than other, um, healthcare providers that are ordering genetic testing. Is there anything unique to, um, your approach or ways that you've changed that over time? Hmm. How we request genetic tests, you mean? Yeah, of just deciding that um, the decision process for patients, do you want testing? Do you not want testing? And kind of going through some of that information with them and, you know, having them decide to do it. And then obviously there's, you know, more of the steps of getting the sample and all of that, um, mm-hmm. but more on the patient decision side and, and that conversation and thought process. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it actually took me quite a while to realize what I just mentioned before. So in the beginning, I thought I needed to go through, you know, what the gene is, what the chromosome is, um, how it inherits, et cetera. Um, but now I understand a bit more that this is not necessarily what they want to hear. So at the beginning, I just asked them, how much would you like to know? What kind of detail would you like to know? And they would say, honestly, I just want the basics. Or you can tell me and I'll ask you if I want to know more detail into this. So they, they can just navigate and, and um, basically tell us what exactly they want and how deep we need to go. Um, so that's number one thing that I've changed. The other thing that I have changed is I try to give people as much time as they need. So um, I realize that sometimes a decision needs to be made for management for cancer, for example, or for the management of the neonate, in which case we cannot really, really wait. But if I see that there's a reluctancy there, or if a patient feels not really ready, then I try to give them as much time as possible, whether that's a day, whether it's a matter of them talking to their relatives and coming back, because we have to also think that the patient experience also goes back to the family, right? So we we started with the like, approaching genomics with them and telling them what to expect or giving them information about how they can prepare as best as they can, then their experience with us and then the after experience after us. And that's what stays. So it's important that what stays is something that they are comfortable with. And whether a conversation with their relative would help or even if another consultation with them and their relative or chosen support person would help on the next day then yes um, I think that would be essential because we have to understand that given we cannot be there long term for them to give them appointments every three months or six months for example to address those issues it's important that at least we do our best at the consent process to ensure that when they get that result they are as ready as possible and their family is also as prepared as possible to help them or their friends or colleagues, etc. Yeah, making sure that they have enough information to relay that on to their family, as you said, because that they could have health implications from that, and then getting those results. So really being able to educate them to the point where you're like, okay, I really feel like, you know, the patient understands what we've talked about and what's important when results do come around. Um, on this topic of patient education, we do have a viewer question. Do you have any resources departments can use to help educate patients before an appointment. So we were talking about that earlier of just, you know, having patients more educated when they come in can certainly help with a session um, and help patients think of questions ahead of time and start thinking about these topics. Um, Do you have any resources to recommend for our viewer? Yeah, great question. Uh, We're actually developing that as we speak. (laughs) So it's kind of a preview. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so what we're doing is we basically created a a website uh, for our department and um, we've got a section of questions uh, or what to expect. And here's a few questions that you may want to ask your healthcare provider or your family to gather more detail about this matter. And we're also planning to do some short videos. Interestingly, um, uh, some research that we have done, I think two months ago, again with service design students, revealed that patients hate leaflets. So, you know, we, are, we love leaflets in the NHS. Every department has at least 30 of their own. 
and we repeat and update them every couple of years and we print them, which is of course unsustainable. Right. And we send them through the post, but patients see them and they just throw them away, you know. Um, and I guess we can imagine that because whenever I receive a leaflet, I just usually just throw them in the bin as well. Um, so we're trying to create content that is short, um, content that actually is relevant to the society nowadays. Um, I heard that actually a minute long is ideal for this kind of thing. So we'll do several one minute long clips of what to expect from this test or that test or from your clinic, uh, how to gather information about your family, etc. And going along with that, I think we're inspiring a lot of people to be thinking about these um, educational resources. Um, there's another question. Hi, thank you for this webinar. I wonder how we can improve the understanding of patients by using motion graphics presentations. What is the best way to make the info simple in the clinic? As a student and trainee, I tried to bring with me some objects such as DNA model. I looked like science teacher bringing these projects. What do you think? Um, I mean, if the person is visual, go for it. Um, I guess we all learn in different ways. Some people are kinesthetic, which means that they learn by touching and, and being involved with their own hands. Some other people learn by listening. Some other people learn by viewing. Um, so that's one level. And then the other one is, do they really want or need to see a DNA module? Um, maybe. Maybe they'll be curious to see what it is but would it really help them in the long-term manage uh, Fanconi anemia or uh, manage another condition that they or a relative may have? I'm, I'm not sure. I think some people, including myself, to be honest, I want to have all the information available. You want to bring me a DNA module, please bring it. <laughs> uh, but I also know that some people, especially during the early stages of a diagnosis, they find it overwhelming to have a lot of props um, so I'd say stick to as much basic information as you can have your props on the side in case there is a person who's curious would like to have everything possible and they would really appreciate it um, but just try to be I guess as adaptive as possible because when it comes to patient experience or user experience everyone is different everyone has different backgrounds in terms of knowledge uh, or resilience even, and they would need different things. Yeah, I think that's very well said in that, you know, we need to adapt as we go with patients. That's something that we're constantly doing of, okay, this patient's more of a numbers person. So we're going to talk, mm. I'm going to give them as many numbers as I can and, yeah. and phrase things that way and flip the stat. If I say, you know, there's a 25% chance of this, so 75% chance of not that and, and using mm. that. And um, I know for myself, I draw a lot. I'm not a great um, artist, but I think patients appreciate being presented like one piece of information at a time. So if you're drawing it out with them, you're kind of going with your thought process and, and using that and visual aid. So I think there's a lot of different um, resources out there and you know, just even just Google images of like certain things. Um, mm can be really helpful just seeing like, okay, what does the patient need and what do I have, you know, in my tool belt to help them in that moment? Um, we have another uh, listener viewer question here. Some of the new digital tools you mentioned are being used across healthcare. Are they sufficiently flexible to meet the needs of genetics departments that work with families rather than individuals? Or do you think more specialized digital solutions are required in genetics? Well, it depends on the situation. Um, for example, when it comes to telehealth, um, I feel that the solutions that exist for any other specialty is adequate for us. Um, with the, I guess, the only exception of the Niku card that I explained before, where we have this super high definition camera on that end that enables a clinician to see the, the neonates with a very clear image. Um, Otherwise, if, for example, we're speaking about a database, um, of course, we're sponsored by Phenotips, but yes, having uh, a database like Phenotips would be, of course, better than having the box standard hospital EPR because hospital electronic health care systems would not necessarily link relatives, would not have capacity perhaps to have uh, phenotype information or pedigrees, etc. 
Um, so I'd say that it depends on the situation. It always helps for us to ask why or why not. Do we need this function? Is this essential? For example, is it essential for you to have an electronic pedigree on the patient, a healthcare record? And if yes, then I guess you need to find a solution that makes one. Or you could even speak to your uh, electronic healthcare record provider and ask, could you embed this? Could we have something linked to this system that would have the pedigree? And some providers would have this and would be happy to have it, I guess, um, configured for the benefit for every department in the hospital. Yeah, I think that's a good point, even with phenotypes as an example um, of phenotypes being able to work directly with other EMRs um, and just being able to integrate with that. So if your Mm. hospital system already has one in place, that um, oftentimes phenotypes can work within that. Um, So certainly something and, you know, one of the reasons phenotypes exist is because of this problem that EMRs are not designed for genomics. So phenotypes saw this need and was like, well, let's design one for people that work in genetics because you know, there is a gap with a lot of EMRs that are designed for, you know, as this viewer is saying, the general healthcare. Um, we have a couple more questions. So I want to get to those before we wrap up. Um, the next one is a bit of a follow-up question for Kira. Kira, can't even say my own name right here. <laughs> I'm also someone who loves drawing things during sessions. How have you shifted from this during virtual sessions? Do you have any tools or have you switched methods completely? Um, to be honest, I don't do a ton of telehealth. A lot of patients I see are having their ultrasounds on the same day, so they need to be in person. But when I do have telehealth visits, um, I tend to use a lot of hand gestures. So something like when I'm explaining carrier screening of saying we have two copies of a gene and saying maybe one of those copies doesn't work. And so figuring out, you know, this is you, this is your partner. And if the child inherits it, having two non-working copies. Um, So I think using things like that, even sharing my screen of looking at a visual aid and then using my cursor to point to certain things. um, I'm definitely a visual learner. And I think a lot of most of people are. So something that I'm aware of as I'm going through that. So maybe that's something to, you know, think about it and work on with telehealth. Um, Dimitra, I don't know if you have anything else to add to that. Yeah, no, I I would agree with screen sharing. Um, People really like seeing things. And I guess with screen sharing, you have the advantage of finding different images that uh, would show the same thing and perhaps choose the best one for, for your patient. And another thing that you can also do is draw the image and email it to the patient and you can go through it together or perhaps draw an image um, on your computer. And when you share your screen, you can show you with your cursor. Oh, this is what I meant about, for example, this gene. And this is what I meant about inheritance. So they can point uh, in the same way that we would have done with a pen, for example, during uh, a consultation. Yeah, definitely. Um, We have a couple more questions here. So I think we have time for one more. If we don't get to your question, um, hopefully we can answer that uh, in the blog post for this. Um, So Sanjay, if you want to take some screenshots of that as we wrap up here. Um, But I think we have time for one more. Um, Do you think primary care physicians or consulting clinicians need to be trained by professional genetic counselors? considering informations that may overburden patients, for example, while informing about um, endotypes of COPD, asthma. Um, so I think what this question is getting at is if you know, other healthcare providers should be trained by genetic counselors and um, you know, how that can be advantageous you know, for healthcare departments to talk and make sure that you know, people understand what they're doing and educating the patient. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think In a way, this is the future for us, Um, at least in the HS, and I would imagine it might be similar everywhere else, where there's only a small number of genetic counselors and there's a huge number of individuals eligible for tests. So there is this much that we can do. And as you picked up, it could be that a GP needs to do a a test in primary care that would reveal something that could be inherited. So, and also regardless of whether they do a test, they treat our patients. So they treat patients with genetic conditions. So they need to know what is going on and they also need to understand when to refer someone, etc. So definitely um, I would say that our role would be to focus more on teaching and also working together. It doesn't have to be that 
we have to adopt this I know I'm teaching you model. It could be that let's work together. Uh, could we, for example, have a clinic together or could I help you understand triaging a bit better or we could perhaps also have, you know, joint conferences where we have uh, discussions around genomics in primary care. And it could be that we also learn about their experience and we can also perhaps work jointly to improve the patient journey and the patient experience. Yeah, I think that's very well said and just rounds off kind of a lot of the topics that we've been talking about of just looking at how we can better communication throughout departments so that it does end up at the end of the day improving patient experience. So thank you so much, Demetra, for coming on the show and sharing so much of your insight. Um, I think we answered a lot of questions and we certainly could keep going, um, but we are out of time. So for people that uh, have tuned in, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us from all over the world. You'll see a feedback link emailed to you. Please take a minute uh, to offer your feedback and uh, give us more information in terms of like what topics you'd like to see in the upcoming series. We tend to do one a month for these. So, um, you know, we're certainly planning more and we look forward to connecting with you. If you want to rewatch this, if you want to rewatch other previous episodes, this is our seventh installment. So we have seven of these that you can check out. They're all at phenotips.com. Click on the stories at the top and then the speaker series will pop up in the drop down menu so again all the installments are on there and you can stay tuned for our next webinar um, again if you're interested in checking out my podcast it's called dna today you can search that on any podcast player and social media the website is dnapodcast.com if there's questions um, that we missed you can also email them into info at dnapodcast.com and i'll make sure those get answered as well if we miss them today um, Demetra, thank you so much again for coming on i've really enjoyed our conversation and just appreciate everything you bring to the table here Oh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it as well. And it was a very pleasant hour. Thank you. Yes. All right. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in. We've really enjoyed connecting with you and we'll see you for the next installment.